Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. 71% of the Earth's surface is covered by oceans, which are home to 99% of the life on Earth. About 250,000 species of ocean life have been discovered so far, but the ocean is home to an estimated 10 million species. The Monterey Bay Aquarium on the central coast of California holds more than 300,000 creatures representing over 500 species that live in 34 of the major aquarium galleries at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Under the direction of Gilbert Van Dykhuizen, a senior research marine biologist, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has created a deep-sea life exhibit which is reflective of the deep-sea canyon located in the Monterey Bay and comparable in size to the Grand Canyon. This interview, recorded in 1999, begins with Gilbert Van Dykhuizen explaining what makes the Monterey Bay Aquarium so unique. One of the things that makes the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium really unique is that we've taken a regional approach um, as opposed to um, ex exhibiting exotic or unique or global animals. We focused to we've we've focused on Monterey Bay specifically and all the habitats within Monterey Bay, and we take people through a habitat path as we call it. And right now, our habitat path consists of everything from the beach on out into the deep sea. And so we've covered areas, for example, um, the intertidal zone. Um, we have basically the first uh, aquarium to ever exhibit a living kelp forest with real kelp and uh, all the creatures that occur in this three-dimensional, huge, 35-foot-deep exhibit tank, well over 300,000 gallons, with it's open to the sun. And so it's almost a cathedral-type experience um, where people walk up and there's a surge moving back and forth. Uh, there's a sunlight, shafts of light coming through, and this tremendous plant, Macrocystis, which is known as giant kelp, uh, which extends from basically the rock work on the bottom of the tank all the way to the surface and creates a canopy. And it's almost as if you were diving in that kelp forest yourself. And it basically was designed to give people that never dive the opportunity to give them the feeling of diving within a kelp forest. So you're standing next to a view or a slanted window to look at the kelp forest. Um, Yes, in a way, it's not a slanted window. They're basically vertical panels which extend up, oh, 12 feet, and then there's actually a second group of panels that extend up above that. So you can actually view the window at two levels, a floor level and then a second floor level. Um, so one of the habitats, obviously, we focus on heavily is a kelp forest environment. And then we kind of go around the bay. We, we, we look at sandy uh, bottom environments. We look at deep reef environments and the types of fishes and invertebrates that occur there and both biotic and abiotic factors that affect those environments. Can you describe the difference uh, between biotic and abiotic? Um, an abiotic factor might be like what we would call a physical factor. For example, um, tides or wind or 
sun are kind of abiotic factors, currents and tides and those types of things, whereas a biotic factor would be um, predation um, uh, between species and so on. So uh, biotic tend to be between animals and animals. Uh, physical factors or abiotic would be between a, a, a physical factor uh, impacting an animal in some way, um, such as its environment, whether it's rocky or sandy. The Monterey Bay itself, is that a particularly diverse environment, or is the, is the aquarium here because this was a place for it? Monterey Bay is a very uh, diverse marine environment, um, and that's why our aquarium, uh, I, I believe, has been successful. As we're, we're located in an area that's obviously very diverse, and we're able to bring those animals right to our visitor, um, those animals and those habitats. And the reason being, one of the reasons behind the diversity here relates to um, <clears throat> Our location, uh, we're right on a submarine canyon. It's the largest submarine canyon on the Pacific coast. And basically, within a stone's throw of the beach, uh, you can get out to 100 feet of water. And within an hour's boating ride, uh, 10 miles out, you're in roughly 3,000 feet of water. And you're still within the Monterey Bay and 10 miles out. Yeah, you're still within the Monterey Bay. Now, when you get about 60 to 70 miles out, quite a distance from shore, but not that far, really, when you compare it to other parts of the world, you're actually in about 12,000 feet of water where the canyon kind of plateaus out and turns into kind of the continental shelf. So <clears throat> with the fact that there's a unique canyon here, the oceanic factors allow nutrient-rich water and, and currents and so on to come into the bay and produce very nutrient-rich water, which supplies uh, the primary production for the food chain, which starts out producing phytoplankton, which are the tiny microscopic plants, which rely on sun and nutrients in the water. And then there is a production, of course, zooplankton, which are the small, tiny little animals, and they feed on phytoplankton and so on and so forth to where you have this incredible dynamic marine environment. Now, it's not like that every day, every year, but there are cycles that we go through throughout the year that uh, at times, you know, there's tremendous amounts of biomass in the bay. And we also have this unique, uh, diverse <coughs> group of habitats around here, whether it's sandy bottom, deep reefs, canyon, pelagic, where you'll have albacore or tuna or pelagic sharks come in the bay or thresher sharks certain times of the year. Are you able to recreate those diverse environments here at the aquarium? For the most part, we are. Um, and then you bring in uh, the fishes from out in, in their um, natural habitat. That's right. It usually starts, though, working with the particular animal itself, um, where we look at the animal. Um, say it's an organism that nobody's ever kept before. Uh, like you mentioned, we study the physical parameters of that habitat first. What's the temperature uh, of the water? You know, are there boundaries? What are the boundaries like? Um, what are the other species that occur in conjunction with that animal? And so we try to recreate that and then also have to learn independently about the animal itself. How do you do that? How do you study the animal? And when do you study it? 
Um, obviously, part of the aquarium world now is, is relate, related to a lot of R&D work that goes into an exhibit or a group of animals or a habitat prior to even putting it on. In the case of uh, our open ocean tank or our deep sea, we spent literally years doing this research um, because it had never been done before um, or done successfully. And so they're not things you can look up in a book. Uh, you know, it comes through, in some cases, you know, uh, trial and error, in some cases, uh, networking with other people, um, talking with folks and trying to come up with, with different ways to solve the problem of tank design or keeping a particular animal or collection. There's so many facets to putting an exhibit online uh, that you have, to, you have to meet each one of those and do it effectively because the ultimate goal is to keep the animal uh, in that exhibit environment in a healthy, happy state for a long period of time. How do you get the animals here? Well, if we're talking specifically about, for example, our Outer Bay exhibit um, where we collect uh, tuna, uh, yellowfin tuna, um, we, uh, we actually go down and we use a charter boat out of the Southern California region that their, their focus is to collect tuna. Uh, and we actually utilize their expertise and then we transport those tuna up here and uh, put them in our exhibits. Um, so that's a hook and line. Well, right now we're sitting in front of a tuna exhibit, uh, a slanted window, and gosh, it looks to me like there's uh, about a hundred or so fishes here of tuna and barracuda. Can you describe what we would see here? What we're seeing right now is we are sitting looking up at a slanted window. It's about a 30 degree angle and it's about 30 feet across, pure acrylic window. And uh, we're looking into about a million and a half uh, gallons of water. And uh, the tank itself is 35 feet deep. And um, we can't even see the back of the exhibit. And what we see is a large school of tuna ranging in size from probably 20 pounds to 120 pounds. And these are yellowfin tuna and bluefin tuna. And we're one of the only aquariums in the world to actually keep uh, yellowfin and bluefin tuna. These are torpedo-shaped, silvery, sleek fish that looks like they've been, uh, you know, their, their skin is just sheen and they, they swim by the window. They're actually looking at us right now with those huge eyes. So they can see us They can here. see us. They actually will come near the window when they see people down here. So it's uh, kind of neat to, to have them checking us out while we're checking them out as well. Have you noticed in the time that they've been here, um, if they have become at all habituated to people, that they have a reaction to seeing us here? Not really. It's kind of hard to interpret that. Um, they're very curious, so they come down to the window to look at us. We have divers which go into this exhibit, and the fish pretty much ignore them. The, the large tuna just ignore them. The divers go down, they clean the windows, they clean the bottom of the tank, and, and the fish seem to be perfectly fine with that, with, with, with that experience. Um, are these uh, the Oedipal tuna that we would have in sushi or in a tuna fish can? Yes, they are. And part of our mission here is to uh, demonstrate to people that, that these, uh, these tuna are part of a billion dollar a year fishery around the globe. And uh, they're actually 
endangered species. Um, many of these fish are being overfished at this time. Part of the problem is we don't have a good handle on the, the biology of the species in terms of their movements. They're one of the most uh, inc intensive migrating species in the world, uh, going thousands of miles each year. How far deep into the ocean do these tuna live? These tuna will typically be found anywhere from the surface and they routinely make uh, dives down into up to as much as a thousand feet of water or maybe even deeper. They're actually warm-blooded animals and so their body temperature um, is usually anywhere from 15 degrees to 20 degrees warmer than the ambient water temperature and so they're able to make these ventures into deeper colder water and then uh, come out of that and, and be perfectly all right where they'll actually feed in, the, in some of these deeper water areas. I'd like to take a moment and say that we're talking with Gilbert Van Dykhausen, a research biologist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, sitting next to a couple of hundred tuna and barracuda in an exhibit that's going to be opening in about two years here in Monterey. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Gil, there's some um, fishes here in the aquarium that live at about 3,000 feet down. How do you get them here? Which creatures are those? Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, referring to our new deep sea exhibit, which opened up in March, um, which is one of those exhibits that we've had to spend years and years working on um, and learned a lot. Uh, some of the animals that we keep in that exhibit um, live anywhere from 600 down to 3,000 feet, as you mentioned. And we use a variety of methods to actually collect those animals. One of the primary methods we use to collect um, a lot of the invertebrates, it's very difficult to catch some of these fish um, using some of the methods, but one of the ways we use is a remote, remotely operated vehicle or an ROV. It's an unmanned submersible. And it's got the capability to go down to the bottom or to the sea floor and actually, um, using a robotic arm, pick up rocks with animals on them without damaging them in perfect condition, place them in a drawer and bring them up to the surface. We then transport the animals back here to the aquarium and are able to work on those animals. Actually, now we have them on exhibit for the visitors to see. Are you able to uh, create an environment here at the aquarium uh, as if it were 3,000 feet deep with the uh, related pressures on the animals that you bring up with the ROV? The answer is we are not dealing with pressure at all, and that's a very common question that comes up. But what we do uh, try, to, try to create is we have to create a very cold environment for these animals. So we utilize um, chillers to cool our water down to about 40 degrees um, Fahrenheit. And that's a critical element. Any warmer temperature will typically cause a meltdown of that animal's physiological system. And so temperature is a very critical thing. Early on when we started doing R&D on these animals, we wanted to keep it simple. Uh, and one of those things that was easy to control was temperature. Uh, we didn't want to necessarily work with pressure if we didn't have to just because of the logistics involved. Very difficult to design and work with systems that are pressurized. Um, 
And then uh, the other thing you have to figure out, obviously, is what these animals eat. And again, there weren't books written on this. We could go to some of the literature that gave us clues, but it turns out a lot of the foods that we feed our normal aquarium animals, with a little bit of manipulation, we fed the same types of foods to these deep sea animals. How do you find that out, what they eat? Um, well, we, what obviously works. what doesn't work causes them to die. Yeah, what, and that, that's actually a, a, a comment that I'd like to address is, you know, these animals, one of the, the, the difficult things in dealing with these animals is because they're in such a cold environment and their metabolism is so low, um, it may take six months before you realize that an animal is not doing well or doing well. And then you have to backtrack and try to figure out what exactly happened there. Was it food? Was it temperature? Was it lack of pressure? Was it light? Was it something else that you have no idea? And so early on, you were just kind of taking baby steps along the way. And, and a perfect example I can use would be with the predatory tunicate, a completely unique animal. No other aquarium has them on exhibit. And they're found out here in about anywhere from a thousand feet of water, about 300 meters, on down to, I think I've seen them as deep as 2,000 meters. And they looked somewhat like a Venus flytrap, except they're completely transparent. They're only about six inches tall. And they have this oral hood, which looks like a very large mouth, kind of a large pocket mouth. And this is a fish or an an a plant? It's an animal. Uh, there are no plants in the deep sea because there's no sunlight, so in turn there's no photosynthesis. So there are no plants at all in the deep sea. It's an invertebrate, and uh, they live permanently attached to a rock. And again, a very transparent looking animal. You can actually see all of its internal organs by looking at it. And what they do is they basically sit and wait, and as small shrimps, uh, which are swimming around the sea floor actually swim into this oral hood, it closes down and traps them inside and feeds on them, ingests them whole. And one of the critical things, I could keep them alive, say, for about six months, and then for some reason something would happen. I couldn't figure it out. I had them feeding and that type of thing. It turns out that just kind of through a fluke, we were doing some work with low oxygen environments, because one of the things that's really unique in the deep sea is that the oxygen levels actually decrease as you go deeper. So as an example, uh, just to give people a frame of reference, at the surface waters, um, the oxygen levels may be, um, oh, 60% saturation, okay, or about, um, you know, six milligrams per liter, or parts per million. As you get down in the water column, they decrease fairly significantly to where once you're down at about 1,000 feet, those O2 levels have dropped uh, down to, say, 15% saturation, so almost five times lower, or six times in some cases. And so what we did, uh, kind of almost on a fluke, was I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try these tunicates in a low oxygen environment. We've been working with some animals that came from a deeper uh, depth, like 900 meters, um, or, you know, 3,000 feet. And lo and behold, these animals lived three times as long in that low oxygen environment. And so, you know, kind of the bottom line is science is never necessarily planned. It comes about by accident or by the light bulb going off, for the instance. trial and error. And the what trial and error. And, um, and so we're now able to keep these animals longer in a low oxygen environment. Now, we don't necessarily know why uh, physiologically. We have some ideas, but 
today we haven't nobody has tested this scientifically we just kind of got the result that we wanted which was longevity and now we're able to put these animals on and keep them for a year or two years and that and 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 there actually some some reproductive work that we're actually doing with them now to where we might be able to raise them as well so that's a neat little story that happened with the deep sea and that's occurred um, the research that you mentioned has occurred over about a 10-year period here at the aquarium that's correct um, and I'd say the most uh, probably there's a window there of probably about five to six years where we had some real intensive research going on just trying to figure out how to keep some of these things alive how to collect them because some of the criteria that we laid out for ourselves was Number one, uh, these animals would have to be collectible to us on a regular, predictable basis. I, I want to interrupt for a minute and ask you to tell us about this turtle that's swimming by. Okay. Right close to the window here. This is uh, one of our large green sea turtles here in the Outer Bay exhibit. And this is a green sea turtle, which are endangered animals. Uh, you can't collect them from the wild. You basically get them from other aquariums or from facilities that uh, uh, raise these animals um, where they actually have culture facilities, but it's about 200 pound green sea turtle. It's a female. And they breathe air. And they breathe air. Uh, what they do is they'll swim around the exhibit um, and about every 20 minutes or so they'll surface, uh, take a breath of air, and then cruise around and, and uh, give a lot of oohs and ahs to our visitors again. Gil, I'd like to ask you about the research plans of the Monterey Bay Aquarium that are going on behind the scenes. Most people come here and they look at the fishes and they see what we don't normally see uh, when we're away from an aquarium or away from the sea. But as well as that, there's a whole research structure that's going on here. Tell us about it. And that's correct. Yeah, within our husbandry department, um, in order to keep uh, designing new exhibits and coming up with new ideas, we always have to plan ahead. And so years in advance of an exhibit opening up, uh, many times we'll start, we'll have an R and, a site specifically designated for R&D work. And we'll assign a couple of people, uh, okay, you're gonna work on you know XYZ animal or XYZ habitat, and let's try to uh, get some kind of answers on can we do this or can't we do this? Is it feasible or is it not feasible? And so we devote, I feel, a lot of both time and money to that. And that's one of the reasons I believe you keep, you know, both growing as an aquarium. You keep putting new exhibits out there and uh, exposing new animals and new habitats to the visitors. And that's critical in, in continuing to stay on the cutting edge of husbandry and aquarium science, is continuing to invest in your, invest your money back into your facility and your R&D. Uh, we have areas set up to work with deep sea animals. We have areas set up to work with pelagic animals, like we're doing work with bonito right now and raising bonito. We're doing work with animals that'll be in some of our temporary exhibits that, uh, you know, we're fine-tuning things. In some cases, some animals are being worked on and they just need to be fine-tuned here and there. And it has everything to do from feeding to, you know, figuring out what animals feed to the different types of tank design. Certain animals may do better in a particular exhibit design. Well, we need to work with that. And it's a long, kind of arduous process in many cases. How many people are part of the research department at the aquarium? 
Well, right now we don't necessarily have a research department per se, but there's probably um, a good half dozen folks within our husband department that are doing research, whether it's related to culture or the deep sea or outer bay waters. And then we also have partnerships in the area that also assist us with some of these projects as well. So a lot of it is kind of incorporated within our own structure, within our own department. Prior to this, we used to have specific research departments, and in some cases we do that. We'll go ahead and we'll create a group that's specifically attacking one particular project. At this time, we're not doing that. Gil, I'm particularly interested in uh, the stories from the deep, the deep sea that you bring here uh, much closer to, the, uh, to sea level. Okay, great. Yeah, there are actually some great stories associated with that, in particular to collecting some of the animals. As I mentioned previously, we use uh, remotely operated vehicles, and these are, you know, very expensive machines, you know, million-dollar robotic vehicles that some of these, you know, they're basically one-of-a-kind in the world. And it uh, amazes me every time I go out, um, formally anyway, I don't do it that much anymore, but sitting in the in the room surrounded by TVs and, and computer monitors and the pilots there operating the ROV and I'm pointing at the screen, we need one of those. And uh, you know, so they park it on the sea floor and the robotic arm comes out and reaches out. And uh, in some cases, uh, people start laughing because w what they see at the end of that robotic arm isn't exactly what they expected. Uh, for some of the animals, we've had to come up with unique solutions to actually collect them. Uh, you can't, like what? You what can't you grab them. In one case where we collect these pom-pom anemones, they're these large, and they look like a pom-pom, orange anemones that are about dinner plate size, you can't grab them. So we use like an aluminum vegetable colander to pick them up off the sea floor. And so at the end of this robotic arm, you've got a colander, and you scoop them up and you put them in the drawer. Another uh, technique that we use at the end of what we call our pincher or jaw manipulator is we put um, mop sponges so that we don't crush the animal. It's all this aluminum and the steel. We just take your basic household mop sponges that you can get at your local grocery store, cable tie those on, and then we squeeze the sea whips or other types of animals that we collect from the sea floor, pluck those off the bottom. So it's kind of hilarious sometimes you're out there with a you know, million dollar ROV and you got a buck 29 mop sponge at the end of the robotic arm. And uh, those, those are always human ingenuity. You know, sometimes the simplest solutions are the best. Gilbert Van Dykhausen, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Probably the most recent book I read lately, other than the ones I read to my kids, is one by uh, a New York Times writer named William Broad called The Universe Below. And uh, this particular writer, um, actually I think he's an award-winning writer, talks about the deep sea and actually visited scientists both on the East Coast and the West Coast and talks about uh, kind of the day-to-day -day experiences of the deep sea research of um, scientists that go out in submersibles that are in both, you know, submarines with humans in them and then also unmanned submersibles. And there's examples from the East Coast and from Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, our, our sister organization. Very interesting book and very well written. Gilbert Van Dykhausen, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious.
Gilbert Van Dykhuizen is a senior research marine biologist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium in Monterey, California. The book that he recommends is The Universe Below by William Broad. You may learn more about the Monterey Bay Aquarium at www.mbayaq.org. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.